Hi, welcome, welcome to uh, to our second class in Unfinished Tales here tonight. Uh, I am looking forward to talking about uh, the uh, uh, story of Turin as much as I ever look forward to the talking about the story of Turin. I actually, I do really like the story of Turin, and I've come to enjoy it more. I have a bit of a hard time because it's... Uh, I find it very moving, but it's very sad, uh, and uh, I, I find uh, hard, I find it hard to take in large doses sometimes. Uh, so, but anyway, nevertheless, I'm looking forward to talking about it. Uh, I, before uh, we uh, start, I just wanted to mention uh, something that I know that several of you are familiar with. Um, this uh, this this week is an exciting week for me because our uh, official classes have started at the Mythgard Institute, not just the Mythgard Academy class that we are currently doing, um, but the courses that we're running in our master's degree program um, have begun this week, and it's been really cool. Um, I just taught my first session of my Chaucer class last night, uh, and I'm still very excited about getting to do Middle English again. Uh, It's been a while since I've done Middle English, uh, and it was a lot of fun to do Chaucer again, and uh, it's been fun seeing people start in with our other classes, Celtic mythology and children's fantasy literature, and uh, uh, the Gothic tradition. So it's been really, um, it's it's been a fun week as those classes have been getting off the ground. I just wanted to make sure that everybody is kind of aware that uh, that these classes exist. You know, a lot of people had expressed interest to me in wanting to go deeper. You know, so you love fantasy literature, you love Tolkien. Um, you know, a lot of people have been looking for an opportunity to really study these things in more depth um, and to get themselves to the place where they are, you know, able to, uh, to, to even write and publish on these works. Uh, and many of our Mythgard students um, have already realized that goal from, you know, being uh, serious but uh, casual fans to really digging in and following their passion further. It's been really fun to be a part of. Um, so if you are interested in thinking about our, our Mythgard classes and, and more of what they're about, uh, you should definitely check that out. This is still the first week of the semester, so there's still time to join even this semester, though of course we'll be uh, continuing with our classes in the semesters to come too. So you can find those at our website, www.mythgard.org. Okay, well, tonight um, we are going to... Wow, Brenna, you have like 18 topics you want to talk about. That's awesome. Um, <laughs> and I can do them all at once. Um, I want to start off with a little bit of, of the very rough summary of the development of the Turin story over time, again, in Tolkien's life. Um, just as we did last time, looking at the unfinished tales as a whole and sort of where they fit in, I want to look a little bit at the progress of the Turin story. I say a little bit because it's really complicated. Christopher Tolkien, um, in the introduction to the Children of Hurin, calls it the most complicated and uh, uh, and you know sort of difficult to piece together of all of the sort of manuscript stories that his father left behind. Um, but let me give you a little bit of an overview, anyway. Um, even if a crude and incomplete one. It all began very early on in Tolkien's life, um, you know, when he was uh, in his early 20s. Um, and he was working, he loved the Kalevala, that is the national epic of Finland. Um, and in particular, he was very taken with one 
story that is told in the middle of the Kalevala, the story of Kulervo. And the story of Kulervo is not exactly, of course, the story of Turin, but it has many elements uh, which people who are familiar with the story of Turin will find uh, very familiar. Uh, the incest with the uh, the unknowing incest with the sister is there. The uh, suicide and talking to his sword is there. There are a whole bunch of elements um, which uh, uh, were there in the Kulervo story. So the first step in the process of the Turin Turambar story was Tolkien basically filling out his own version of the Kulervo story. He wrote a version of the Kulervo story where he was sort of beginning to make it his own. It wasn't just a translation. He was not just, you know, sort of redoing or rewriting it. Well, he was rewriting it. He, As I said, he was sort of more making it his own. Then from there, he integrated uh, the Turin story, which is based heavily upon especially his Kulervo story, um, he integrated that into the Book of Lost Tales, which, of course, I mentioned last time. That's that very first collection of these mythological stories that he wrote back in the uh, back in the teens, the nineteen teens. Um, so Turambar and the Fo- and the Foaloke, um, which is the dragon, um, were was was part of that initial collection. After the Book of Lost Tales period, he started writing a long poetic version. I mentioned this last time as well. Um, he start, In alliterative verse, he started writing a full epic poem treatment uh, of the Narni Hien Hurin, the alliterative Narn. He didn't get all that far in it, um, but he uh, but he wrote quite a bit. Um, and had so, so you see his impulse here is to now develop the Turin story more, and his first choice of mode is poetry, um, and alliterative poetry, more particularly, um, which I think is is kind of interesting in itself, for reasons I'll come back to later. Then he integrates the Turin story uh, into the Quenta. So when he sits down in 1930, and he starts to do uh, his sort of overview of the mythology, to really kind of, to take the individual stories that he'd been writing, um, which were already related to each other, of course, in the Book of Lost Tales, but they were presented uh, in these separate chunks, and he's going to integrate them into this one sort of overview account that he was giving in the Quenta. And, of course, he includes the Turin story quite prominently there. More on that in a little bit. Then after that, so that's in the early 30s, then in the, in the, in the mid to late 30s, he starts writing this text, the one that we're reading uh, here in Chapter 2 of Unfinished Tales. Um, he st- does the first half of that, and then it breaks off. And it breaks off at the place where uh, Christopher Tolkien says, See the Silmarillion? Right? Um, when they're in Barin Dunwith, the... the, the uh, you know, memes place on Amon Ruth. Um, and then he comes back to it in the early 50s after he's finished The Lord of the Rings right in that same time that he's writing Tuor and his coming to Gondolin, chapter one of Unfinished Tales. Um, he writes the latter parts, the parts of, uh, of the Narn we're going to talk about next week. Um, and that's his fullest version, fullest semi but not quite complete version of the Turin story that he's written yet. Then later on, he basically revisits the the Quenta idea, the sort of overview uh, of the mythology concept, and that's the material which then eventually gets taken and edited and published by Christopher Tolkien as the Silmarillion. And then after that, of course, as you know, in 2007, I believe if I'm getting the date right, Christopher Tolkien releases The Children of Hurin, in which Christopher has taken sort of all of this stuff and put it together into one contiguous narrative um, so that we have a full novel-length treatment of 
the children of Horan. That is sort of the progress of this story. The couple things that I would want to point out here is Tolkien worked on this story for at least 60 years. Um, you know, that's not counting the time that Christopher Tolkien worked on it. The Turin story was very, very important to him. Um, and uh, he, you know, and it, I think, therefore, is something which is really deserving of special attention by us. It's one reason why I have kept coming back to the Turin story, even though I kind of avoided it for a long time, as I think I confessed last time, um, you know, when I used to read Unfinished Tales when, uh, you know, when I was in, like, my teens and twenties, uh, I often, not every time, but often used to skip, uh, the First Age stuff, especially the Turin story, um, because I was sufficiently depressed by the shorter Silmarillion version of the Turin story, and so the idea of a longer version of the Turin story I did not find appealing at all. Um, but of course, I've I've been overcoming that uh, that that aversion, this simple aversion to suffering, that uh, has that had kind of led me away from the Turin story for so many years. Because you know, the more I've studied this, the more obvious it is how important this story is to Tolkien, and and how how crucial, therefore, I think it is uh, to try to come to grips with it uh, and to understand it. Um, the other thing that you see, apart from the fact that it has obvious significance to Tolkien and the fact that he ke- keeps coming back to it and spent so much time on it over the course of his entire life, um, it also has a really important place in his mythology um, and an important place which is, I think, the more conspicuous for being counterintuitive. That is to say, Eärendil also has a really important place in uh, in the mythology that Tolkien created. But Eärendil's, the importance of Eärendil's position is a little bit more obvious. I mean, Eärendil is the turning point. Um, he is the the prophesied one to come who shall do this thing which shall lead to the intervention of the Valar. I mean, the coming of Eärendil and what he does uh, leads to, you know, the cataclysm which ends the First Age, according to his later treatment of it. So, again, the fact that Eärendil plays an important role, that's clear from the very beginning. Uh, that is, ever since Eärendil was a thing. Turin, though, Turin's role is less obvious. He doesn't have that kind of a monumental role. He doesn't accomplish anything. He doesn't accomplish anything like Eärendil does. He doesn't even accomplish anything like Beren does. Um, what's so important about him? Um, and then you go back, if you actually go back and look at the earlier versions of the Turin story, and you discover that Turin and Tuor also uh, have a actually quite remarkable uh, role in Tolkien's mythology. Um, indeed, both of them play an apocalyptic role in Tolkien's mythology. Um, if you don't know what I'm talking about, um, let me show you. So, First, we'll start with Tuor. This is sort of a little segue from last time. Uh, and this is actually it's something that I had wanted to bring up last time but didn't get around to. Um, so I'm going to start with it today because it leads us into Turin anyway. And that is, you know, I spent some time, um, at times perhaps confusingly, talking about the difference between the Tuor story as we get it in Unfinished Tales and the Tuor story as it existed in the only other 
um, the only at all complete version of the Tuor and uh, the Fall of Gondolin story, which is the the one in the Book of Lost Tales, that first one that Tolkien ever wrote, um, and ended up being the only time he ever completed a finished version of the Fall of Gondolin. Um, but the differences that we can see in the Tuor story and the Gondolin story as it's being envisioned in the in Chapter One of the Unfinished Tales in that bit, we can see some quite significant differences to how it was going before. And I didn't even talk about what I feel to be the most significant shift, that is the biggest core difference between the Book of Lost Tales, Fall of Gondolin back in 1917, and the, and the later, in the 1951 of Tuor and his coming to Gondolin. And that is the role that Tuor and by Tuor's message, Turgon, was supposed to play in the bigger schemes of things. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read two passages here from the Quinta. Again, this was written in 1930. It's that first sort of summary overview of the mythology that Tolkien was writing. Um, and uh, uh, so this is the description of Tuor. This is basically the, the bit of the Quinta that corresponds to the Tuor story we read last time. But now Ulmo bade him make all speed to Gondolin, and gave him guidance for the finding of the hidden door and words were set in his mouth to bear to Turgon, bidding him prepare for battle with Morgoth ere all was lost, and promising that Ulmo would win the hearts of the Valar to send him succor. That would be a mortal and terrible strife, yet, if Turgon would dare it, Morgoth's power should be broken, and his servants perish, and never after trouble the world. But if Turgon would not go forth to this war, then he must abandon Gondolin and lead his people down Syrian, ere Morgoth could oppose him, and at Syrian's mouth Ulmo would befriend him, and lend his aid to the building of a mighty fleet, wherein the gnomes should sail back at last to Valinor, but then Grievous would be the fate of the Outer Lands. Tuor's part, if Turgon should accept the counsels of Ulmo, would be to go forth when Turgon marched to war, and lead a force into Hithlam and draw its men once more into alliance with the elves, for without men the elves shall not prevail against the orcs and balrogs. Okay, so you can see, obviously, the huge difference, right? The huge difference is what is the message that Omo is sending? In of Tuor and his coming to Gondolin, in chapter 1, as we were reading, the message that Omo gives to Tuor is to tell... Uh, he's, 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 he is telling Turgon that it's time to go, right? Don't love too well the works of your own hands. Be ready to leave when I tell you. He's there, he's basically giving, not an eviction notice, that's not quite right, um, but his uh, his message to Turgon is, run. Gondolin is about to fall. If you stay there, Gondolin will fall. The message to Turgon in the earlier version, and this was also, uh, uh, the, the, we, 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 we see this also, um, you know, sort of in this period, the message to Turgon was fight, attack. If you come out of Gondolin now and assault Morgoth, you'll win. Think about that. From, a pu- from the, sta- the standpoint of the published Silmarillion, that seems almost inconceivable, doesn't it? But that was the initial thing. That was Tuor's message. Turgon was to be the pivotal uh, point in the victory over Morgoth. And if you think about it, you can still hear some echoes of this idea. Um, Tolkien, when he revised his stuff, he was very, uh, you know, sort of persnickety and always going back and tweaking things and revising them. But he, um, he, he very rarely 
completely overhauled stuff. That is, when you when you go back and you look at early, at later versions and compare them with earlier versions, you can always see some things that instead of changing them, he's just incorporated them and kind of recontextualized them. Right? You can still see, you know, memories of those older versions uh, in his revised stuff. And one of the places where I think we can see this in the revised in the Silmarillion, the published Silmarillion, you may remember the reference to how concerned Morgoth was about Turgon. That he, you know, his victory after the near Nithar Noidiad, his victory over the, you know, the elves and men in the north seemed complete, but he was not comfortable because Turgon had escaped him. And that, and there's that reference to the fact that even when they were back in Valinor, um, before, before Morgoth, you know, had, you know, when he was unchained there uh, in Valinor, and when Tur- before the Noldor had come back, um, oh, and by the way, of course, the reference to gnomes here, that means the Noldor. He was still calling them gnomes before he abandoned the word gnome because it had too many other associations and he decided to stop fighting against those. So the gnomes of the Noldor. Sorry. Um, but, um, so, Turga, so anyway, so there's that reference in the published Silmarillion how even back in Valinor, Morgoth had always... It's like trembled when Turgon walked by. Like he had always been uneasy. Whenever he saw Turgon, his heart was troubled. Right? He had some kind of premonition that through Turgon, evil would come to him. Um, and I remember in the published Silmarillion, I always ended up finding that a bit odd. I was like, well, I mean, okay, yeah. I mean, very indirectly in the published Silmarillion, right? I mean, in that Turgon. You know, Tuor comes to Gondolin and then begets Eärendil. Uh, you know, with Turgon's daughter, and Eärendil brings, you know, leads to the bringing back of the Valar and the War of War of Wrath. So, yeah, I guess Turgon has a role, but um, but I remember never feeling that that was immensely satisfying. Like, so why is it that Turgon is though? I mean, why not uh, why not Fingolfin? Why not Finway? I mean, if if Eärendil's grandfather, you know, gave him a premonition, why not his great grandfather? You know, I mean, it just it just seems it just seemed a little bit too indirect. But thinking about it in this previous context, when Turgon was the one who was going to strike the the the, the blow that would shatter Morgoth's entire empire, that Turgon was literally to be his undoing. Well, that's um, that that makes that make a little bit more sense. So Tuor's role was a very significant one. His message, fight, and his role in bringing the men in line so that Turgon leading the elves and Tuor leading the men would come back to this, you know, reunion between elves and men, which had been broken. Um, you know, the, 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 the alliance between them had been broken in the near Nithar Arnoidiad by the betrayal of Oldor the Accursed. All that was going to be healed, and it was going to be great. So, um... Anyway, that was the initial concept. And then it he moves away from this. Look later at the Quinta in what was Turin's original role. Uh, we get the synopsis of the story of Turin, and it ends the same way. Remember, Turin's suicide uh, and his addressing his sword and his sword talking back to him and him killing himself after unknowingly committing incest with his sister is literally the oldest part of the story, right? That's the part that goes all the way back to the Kalevala and the story of Kulervo. Um, uh, way back, you know, before Turin Turambar, as we have come to know him, um, was born. Um, but, 
that was not, in fact, the end of Turin's story in the original version. You might think that his suicide would be the end of his story, but no, that was not the case. If you've never read this before, brace yourself, because your mind is about to be blown. (laughs) I know mine was. Thus spake the prophecy of Mandos, which he declared in Valmar at the judgment of the gods, and the rumor of it was whispered among all the elves of the West. When the world is old and the powers grow weary, then Morgoth shall come back through the door out of the timeless night, and he shall destroy the sun and moon. But Arendel shall come upon him as a white flame and drive him from the airs. Then shall the last battle be gathered on the fields of Valinor. In that day Tolkas shall strive with Melko, and on his right shall stand Fionwe, and on his left Turin Turambar, son of Hurin, conqueror of fate, and it shall be the black sword of Turin that deals unto Melko his death and final end, and so shall the children of Hurin and all men be avenged. How about that? Huh? Turin will be will come back from the dead, apparently. There's a... Uh, Christopher notes um, uh, that... There's a pencil notation uh, next to the margin of this manuscript um, where Tolkien adds um, from Mandos, that Turin uh, returns from Mandos um, to fight alongside uh, Tolkas and Fionwe. And Turin, with his black sword, will kill Melkor. He's the one who will kill Morgoth. Bet you didn't see that coming, did you? I, can, I mean, uh, it's amazing. It's amazing. And again, what, that, at the very least, the thing that I would want to take from this is the significance, as I said, the importance of Turin's place in this mythology in Tolkien's mind. Why he would reach for Turin um, and have him there, have him be the one who strikes the death blow. Uh it's it's amazing. It's just amazing. Um, conqueror of fate. Huh? Conqueror of fate. Um, Evan asks, which decade is this version from? Around 1930 is when this is from. He was writing this at the same time he was writing The Hobbit. That's the time frame that we're talking about here. Um, uh uh, Rich asks, is, is this the only instance of, of, of an Armageddon myth uh, in Tolkien's work? One of the few, yes. Um, this is, I, if I'm remembering correctly, this is the only version of his sort of survey of the mythologies that goes all the way up to Armageddon. I mean, because this is, this is an apocalyptic, this is the end of time. This is not the end of the First Age. This is not the War of Wrath we're talking about. We're talking about at the end of days. The, ba- the final battle, the last battle, on Earth, um, so um, uh, yeah, it's uh, he becomes really master of doom. Um, it actually works. Uh, uh, Kay says, "How can Turin come back from Mandos if their fate after death is not known?" I, one might speculate that that is perhaps one of the reasons why Tolkien jettisoned this idea after this. I, if I'm remembering correctly, and uh, somebody who who knows the history of Middle Earth um, series should remind me if I'm misremembering, but I don't think there's any reference after this text 
to this incident, um, to Turin's resurrection. I think it drops out um, quickly after 1930, so we don't see it coming back here again. We don't know. He never explained. You know, Alden was just asking why did he uh, abandon this version. We don't know. He doesn't. He 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 didn't explain it. Um, and this is something which, you know, in his commentary on these texts, sometimes Christopher Tolkien speculates or occasionally will even mention something that, you know, his father had said or written about what he, you know, why he was moving in a particular direction. But very often he does not uh, give us anything like that. So. Um, so, yeah, we don't really know. Um, and, you know, to me, speculating about that is of limited usefulness. Um, it's not utterly without use, but it's of limited usefulness to try to guess why it was, what, what Tolkien was thinking uh, when he made that change. But the fact of the change uh, is really, is really fascinating. Um so again, you see, and notice the way that it's couched here. There's the only kind of explanation, it's not really an explanation, but the only kind of indication of why it is that Turin has been chosen for this um, is that he, uh, um, so shall the children of Hurin and all men be avenged. That Turin is standing in the place of, of humans, of humanity here. And he is striking a blow on behalf of humanity against Melkor. Um, that's and that's really interesting. That to me um, is a pretty good indication. It, f- or rather, I should say, it fits with the impression that the Turin story, as it stands and as it has stood at various times, has already given me, um, which is that this is this is a story about the human condition and I think that that's why this is uh, this is so important um, anyway uh, sorry one other quick clarification I'm sorry uh, Sarah I uh, wait no not Sarah um, oh Edwali I I'd meant to mention this uh, Fionwe uh, is uh, the one who in the Silmarillion is called Aonwe uh, the herald of Manwe um Back in the early versions of the mythology, um, the Valar were able to bear children. Um, they had kids, and Fionwe, uh, uh, Aonwe, was originally the son of Manwe and Varda. Um, so he was a much more important figure than just their herald, as he's introduced in uh, in in the Silmarillion, uh, the published Silmarillion. That is, um, so that's one reason why Fionwe is. Uh, a really prominent and, and significant character in this earlier version. He got away from that. He didn't, um, you know, he, 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 he moved away. We see the, the Valar being much less uh, sort of invested in the physical world. They don't actually conceive and bear children. Um, but, um, yeah, yeah. Um, Good. Eduardo, thank you. Uh, Eduardo is reminding me that there is a small reference in the peoples of Middle-earth. That is, he doesn't, he doesn't retell the story, but he does allude to its existence. Um, uh, Eduardo is uh, part 2, chapter 12 of the peoples of, Mid- uh, of Middle-earth. Um, 
Unless the prophecy of Andreth the wise woman should prove true, that Turin in the last battle should return from the dead, and before he left the circles of the world forever should challenge the great dragon of Morgoth and Caligon the Black and deal him the death stroke. See, so that exists, and I had forgotten that reference. Thank you, Eduardo, for reminding me. Um, so we do get a reference to something similar. Notice it's not exactly the same. Uh, Turin coming back from the dead is there. Um, uh, Turin's presence in the last battle is there, but he's not killing Morgoth. He's killing the great dragon of Morgoth and Caligon the Black. Um, so that's an interesting uh, that's an interesting shift. Um, um, Kay asks, "Who is Andreth?" Um, I am going to be uh, talking about Andreth very briefly in a little bit. Um, uh, this is from the wonderful story. I, one of my favorite of Tolkien's writings, actually. I love the Athrobeth, uh, the debate of Finrod and Endreth. This is, uh, this is something that Tolkien wrote later in his career. Um, it's a post-Lord of the Rings writing. And uh, he writes this sort of... He imagines this debate between Finrod Felagund and a wise human woman. Uh, and they are... Um, so they have a they have a long debate together, and really the subject of their debate is death, um, human death, that is, um, and the fate of humans. And they talk about other things too. Um, it's, uh, it's it's an enormously rich uh, and very complicated uh, story. Uh, you can find it in Morgoth's Ring. I said, oh, we'll come back to that uh, in a second when we talk about death. Um, but um, what I was talking about before I got sidetracked onto that, was uh, the sort of the substance of the Turin story, the significance of the Turin story. So to put it in its context for a second, um, Tolkien identified three stories from uh, his mythology as being sort of the big three, the, the sort of the three cent- most central stories of his mythology, the most important ones, the ones that meant most to him. Uh, and those are the story of Baron and Luthien, the story of Turin Turumbar, and the story of uh, the the fall of Gondolin and Eärendil to sort of link the two of them together. Certainly, um, uh, the Eärendil story. Okay, so I think about these three, and if I approach all three of them and ask, okay, what's so important about these stories? You know, what is the significance of these stories in Tolkien's mythology? Look at the Eärendil story, um, and the answer to that is seems pretty obvious right away. The Eärendil story is like the ultimate crossing the threshold into fairy story. You know that that one concept which is so central to so much of Tolkien's writing throughout his life in lots of different contexts, not just in the Silmarillion stuff, not just in the uh, in his Middle-earth stuff, but even, you know, we see him thinking about it in stories like Smith of Wooten Major, of course, very prominently. So even in his short stories we see this kind of stuff happening. But um this idea of a mortal who Transgresses, who crosses the boundary and finds himself in fairy. Um, the Eärendil story, in one sense, is like the ultimate version of that 
uh, of that story. It's also, of course, the great eucatastrophe story. Um, so those two elements, the going to fairy element and the eucatastrophe element, both of which are so central to Tolkien's thought and to all of Tolkien's stories, receive, it seems to me, their kind of ultimate embodiment in the story of Eärendil. So I'm like, oh, well, okay, clearly. The story of Eärendil, that's a, that's, that's a no-brainer um, uh, for, you know, its position in one of the big three. What about the Baron and Luthien story? What do you think we see, you know, what is it that we see in the Baron and Luthien story? Well, you know, one thing, uh, the, the Baron and Luthien story is certainly the the ultimate pattern of love stories in Tolkien. That might, you know, saying it that way might seem to trivialize it, but I don't intend to trivialize it in any way. I think it's a really important theme. Um, and I feel like the Baron and Luthien story is like the pattern of almost every other um love relationship we see in Tolkien, that kind of... And even to expand it beyond that, it's not just about, you know, romance uh, in in sort of a cheesy sense, but, like, the interrelationship of people, how different... how people connect with each other and relate to each other. It's not just... It's not just about romance. It's about... It's about devotion. It's about self-sacrifice. It's about how, you know, people... Uh, can come together. This is why the Baron and Luthien story uh, is the sort of the archetype that lies behind not only the um, the the story of Ar- Aragorn and Arwen, pretty obviously, um, but even the story of of Legolas and Gimli and of uh, Frodo and Sam and of you know anybody who sacrifices for someone else, anyone whose uh, who whose devotion uh, to doing the right thing even on, against impossible odds and standing against the darkness and uh, sacrificing out of love for another, um, you know, those things are, uh, you know, at the core of the Baron and Luthien story. Um, so again, that seems to me to make <clears throat> a whole lot of sense. Then, the Turin story. Okay, so what's the Turin story about? Um... What do you guys think? What's the Turin story about? What's the significance of the Turin story in this way? And I said, I, th- I feel like uh, by characterizing Turin this way in the Quinta, and so shall the children of Hurin and all men be avenged, I, I feel like this kind of points to it. Um, Scott, I agree. Running or facing your fate, says Scott. Um, the uh, Scott Farmer, I should specify, because we have uh, lots of people here with us tonight. Um, K says, doom, pride, choice, and mortality. Yes. The, uh, the question of our relationship with fate, um, the, 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 the relationship between doom and between doom and doom, between fate and choice. Of course, the word doom is such a wonderful word uh, because it can be used in both senses, right? But the doom is something that you declare, that you decide. It's also something that can be laid upon you. Um, that's, uh, um, that's, I think, uh, you know, clearly something <clears throat> which he's very interested in in many other ways. We see his 1951 tour story being very interested in that, as we saw in Chapter 1. But I think the Turin story is really uh, sort of the center of that. Um, uh, Pride, I agree. Uh, uh, Kay was saying Pride, Kevin. 
said uh, Pride Kelly was also talking about Pride in not only in Turin, uh, but in Morwen as well. Yes, yes. Um, all of those things, I think, are, are really important. Um, uh, and uh, the sort of the nature of humanity. You know, Kay, you mentioned mortality. Um, I think that that's a really important element. Um, again, what it, what it means to be a human being. Um, the sort of the the position of humans. So much of his mythology is interested in the elves. Um, the Turin story, although of course it involves elves at many points, um, is one of the only stories which is really focused on humans and the doom of humanity and the position of humanity. Um, because in a sense, and this I think, uh, this longer version of the Narn, longer, that is, than in the Silmarillion, this longer version of the Narn that we get here and gets more fully expanded in the Children of Hurin gives us more clearly than in the Silmarillion version this connection between the curse that Morgoth is under, no, that Turin is under from Morgoth, and the fate of death that all human beings um, are under. Um, Brianna says sorrow. Yeah, Brianna, I agree. Um, I think it is no coincidence that the by far the most heartrendingly sad story uh, in in Tolkien's works is the human story. Um, that I think it has a lot um, a lot to do with that. Um, anyway, so th- that's the position that I that it seems to me the Turin story really occupies. Um, now, I want to actually jump in and start looking at uh, our primary text a little bit more here. Um, but, um, yeah, oh, here, I'm saying, I'm, uh, I'm losing my, uh, getting all caught up in reading your comments, and so I'm losing my, my schedule. I had meant, of course, to post, uh, uh, I'd gotten several questions, uh, uh, some of which I'm saving, uh, and some of which I'm going to talk about in the context of the passages we're going to discuss. Um, but uh, Ed had asked me this question, which I think is, is a really good question. What's the point of this story? Uh, Turin's tragic flaw, if, anyth- if anything, is the consistent inability to make good decisions, and indeed at times the, com- uh, the complete lack of morality. He makes Hamlet look competent and decisive, he says. So why is Tolkien so in love with this story? Why is Turin held up as a great hero, the one that will be called back from death to finally annihilate Morgoth at the end of time? He doesn't deserve the accolades, so why does Tolkien invest him with them? That, I think, is a question that a lot of people have, and so that's what I want to be thinking about, and I want to be thinking about sort of the bigger terms. What is it about this story? Um, What do we really see in Turin? And this is where I feel that the expansions that we get here really start to have a significant impact. Um, That I feel that when you read this story, this is why I really like the Children of Hurin, and I should mention as as a side note, um, I'm not going to talk all that much about the Children of Hurin. I want to try to stay focused on the Unfinished Tales text, uh, primarily because this is 
class on Unfinished Tales, and so that's what we're reading. Um, uh, and, and, you know, that looking at the further steps that Christopher Tolkien took uh, to, in, in, to integrate these things into that final text, uh, which he called The Children of Hurin, is sort of beyond the scope of what we're doing here. Um, but, uh, um, but anyway, um, I really love The Children of Hurin. It, it's, it is my favorite version uh, of the Turin story, because I feel that so many of the things that get skimmed over in the shorter version of, of, of the Turin story it preserves the overall shape of Turin's own personal story, but it strips it of those elements and those those aspects of Turin's life and of Turin's story, which, to me, serve to inform the overall reading of the story much, much more. That is, I really miss the... De- you know, the, Or rather, let me say it the other way around. When I get the, uh, the additional details about... Lalith, when I get his conversations with uh, with Sador Labadal, uh, the, uh, the 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 maimed woodwright who is his friend when he is a child, um, I love the Sador passages. I feel that you know the conversations between Turin and Sador, even just the character of Sador himself, who serves as do several characters in this story as a kind of foil for Turin. Um, you know the self maimed one who fled from his fear and end up that he and end up discovering as he warns Turin that he just had taken a shortcut to it. You can see the parallels between Sador and Turin, the way that these things just sort of emphasize the shape of the story so much more. Um, I think uh, really alter for me the impact that this story has. Um, so in the end, I uh, I am very glad that uh, we got... So despite the fact that, you know, in my younger years I was resistant to reading a longer Turin story, I find it much more satisfying and much more... Um, uh, much more easy to kind of put together. Okay, um, let me then move on to our first passage here. So this is uh, one of the aforementioned conversations between Turin and Sador. Then Turin asked him, What is fate? He's just been asking about Lalith, his sister, and the comment that he heard had heard his father Hurin making about how Lalith was like an elf child, and he was asking Sador, Is she, was she, like an elf child? And Sador says, Well, elf children and human children are kind of similar at first, except human children grow up faster. Um, they're briefer, as he says. Um, but that it's, that's the fate of men, he says, which leads Torin to say, what is fate? As to the fate of men, said Sador, you must ask those that are wiser than Labadal. But as all can see, we weary soon and die, and by mischance many meet death even sooner. But the elves do not weary, and they do not die save by great hurt, from wounds and grief that would slay men, they may be healed, and even when their bodies are marred, they return again, some say. It is not so with us. Then Lalith will not come back, said Turin. Where has she gone? She will not come back, said Sador. But where she has gone, no man knows, or I do not. Has it always been so? Or do we suffer some curse of the wicked king, perhaps, like the evil breath? I do not know. A darkness lies behind us, and out of it few tales have come. The fathers of our fathers may have had things to tell, but they did not tell them. Even their names are forgotten. The mountains stand between us and the life that they came from, flying from no man now knows what. Were they afraid? said Turin. 
It may be, said Sador, it may be that we fled from the fear of the dark, only to find it here before us, and nowhere else to fly to but the sea. We are not afraid any longer, said Turin, not all of us. Okay. Um, the way that Turin, uh, the way that this passage in the story really captures the the child's position, the position of a child who has just experienced death for the first time, you know, a death in the family, um, you know, that question, then, then Lalith will not come back? Lots of kids ask that question. Um, where has she gone? But of course, this is not really just about kids, right? This is about humans. What happens when you die? This, of course, this is one of the great questions. Um, and this is a question that we are confronted with very early on in the Turin story. And the context, of course, is really important. That is the context, the, the, the story context that this is placed in. Um, that we get, because th that leads to his follow-up question. Um, has it always been so? Or do we suffer some curse of the wicked king, perhaps, like the evil breath? This death thing seems like an evil. It seems like a curse. It seems like a punishment. Um, is this something that Morgoth has done? The world that Turin lives in is a world with a very clear enemy in it, right? With a very powerful enemy who does from afar evil things to men. Um, he has just suffered. It is, of course, the plague, the, the, the evil breath, um, this pestilence that came out of the north, um, which made him very ill and killed his sister. Is death like that? He can understand that, right? Um, Sador gives about the only explanation we get during this early phase of Tolkien's writings on where death came from. Um, a word or two on death. I have to be careful because I don't want to get too side tracked on this because Tolkien's thoughts on this subject change a lot over time um, and I'm going to talk a little bit, this is where I was going to bring up Andreth anyway um, but uh, I don't want to get too far into talking about it because it's a different text at a different time um, but in that place we can see him getting into this a little bit more one of the questions that a lot of people have had um, in reading the Silmarillion. Um, the Silmarillion speaks in a relatively simple fashion, saying that death is the gift of Iluvatar to men. Right? Um, death is not a bad thing, it's a good thing. Um, there are letters that Tolkien wrote, you can read them in his published letters, um, when some uh, Catholic acquaintances, some priests of his acquaintance, wrote him about this, and are like, you know, this seems to be Something, something that doesn't really doesn't really jive. Um, Tolkien had said, you know, there is nothing intrinsically contradictory from my mythology to Catholic theology. Um, you know that he was not trying to invent. He says not trying to invent an entirely new theological system in that way. Um, but the objection that several thoughtful readers were. Uh, thoughtful Catholic readers were making was the whole gift to men thing. Um, that seems a flat contradiction of Christian theology. 
Um, nothing else in Tolkien's mythology seems to be a flat contradiction, but that one does. Death, according to, to Christian theology, is clearly a punishment, the consequence of sin. Um, and therefore, not a gift. Tolkien's response is fascinating, um, and, a, and a wonderful response. His response was, which of God's punishments are not also gifts? Um, that's the nature of God's punishments. Um, which, I think, is a very theologically profound answer to that question, actually. But um, in his later writings, he kind of addresses this. And this is one of the reasons that I find that the debate of Finrod and Andreth so fascinating. Um, because there he approaches it from a human point of view. Um, uh, part of what's going on in that debate, Finrod is basically speaking for elves. The whole point is that it's an interracial discussion. Um, an elf lord of the Noldor speaking to a, a wise human. Um, uh, and Finrod is basically articulating the elvish party line, which is what we get throughout the Silmarillion. Um, he's like, so, you know, uh, you complain about death, but, you know, death is the gift of Iluvatar. And um, Andreth basically says, yeah, that's easy for you to say, Elf. You don't know anything about it. And she objects. And she's like, no, it's not. That's not the way it works. You elves don't understand this. Um, and it's really fascinating. I, I, I strongly... Um, I strongly... Uh, I strongly advise you to read that if you can. As I say, it's in... Um, it's in uh, Morgoth's Ring. But... Um, uh, but anyway, the point is that he's sort of coming at it from a different angle and sort of rethinking it. He's not just throwing away the concept of the gift of Iluvatar to men, um, but he is sort of qualifying it and rethinking it in some ways um, in those later on passages. And when he does that, he fleshes out this reference that Sadar makes. A darkness lies behind it, behind us and out of it few tales have come. Well, we get one of those tales. At the end of uh, the Athrobeth, Christopher publishes um, a version of the original, what is essentially the Tolkienian Garden of Eden story. The story, uh, the story that gets alluded to very, very briefly, if you recall, in the Silmarillion, about how when men awoke for the first time, Morgoth himself went to investigate. Uh, and that when humans came into the West, there seemed to be some evil in their past that lay behind them. There are, through these things, a very um, very sort of dim and indirect uh, uh, reference to some kind of fall, some kind of uh, Garden of Eden situation uh, that went on um, before the humans came into the West. Um, we get that story. He actually told that story the story of the Garden of Eden situation. Um, when this guy shows up and says, Hi, I am the giver of gifts. This might sound familiar to you, perhaps. Um, Sauron didn't make that up, right? Uh, Morgoth shows up and says, I am the giver of gifts, uh, and deceives them, and they fall. Um, and death comes as a consequence. Um, one of the points, though, that I would like to emphasize here um, in thinking about Turin's question, what is fate? 
This, of course, can be answered in a couple different ways, right? Sador addresses it in the broadest sense. What is fate? Well, not necessarily the broadest sense, but in a in a broad in the sense of not relating to individual people in particular, but to the race of men as a whole, of humans as a whole. Um, that is, he immediately starts talking about death, and it's pretty clear from Turin's response that that's what he was thinking about. Um, what is this fate that rules over us? Why do we die? Where do we go? What happens? What does it mean to be a human being? Um, what is our purpose, and what is our ultimate destiny? These are the questions that loom behind this conversation that Turin has with Sador, and the ultimate answer is, we don't know. We don't know. We don't know quite for sure where we came from. We don't know where we're going. We don't know where people go, but we're pretty sure they don't come back from where they go. Um, thus, Sador. Hurin, who has had more instruction than Sador, who has spent more time with the Eldar, thinks about this a little bit differently. Let's look at Hurin's conversation with Morgoth. This is when uh, Morgoth initially offers to him, uh, you know, rich rewards and stuff. Uh, if he'll tell him about where Gondolin is. But a fool is he who accepts what Morgoth offers. You will take first the price, and then withhold the promise, and I should get only death if I told you what you ask. Then Morgoth laughed, and he said, Death you may yet crave from me as a boon. And then he took Hurin to the Howth in Nirnaith, that is, the hill of the slain, um, the pile of the dead bodies of Hurin's people. And it was then new-built, and the reek of death was upon it. And Morgoth set Hurin upon its top, and bade him look west towards Hithlam, and think of his wife, and his son, and other kin. For they dwell now in my realm, said Morgoth, and they are at my mercy. Um, I'll just, just pause for a second here. Notice the associations with death. You know, again, thinking about death coming from that earlier passage. I should get only death if I told you what you ask. That is, you would reward me, but if you rewarded me, you would only reward me with death, which, of course, Huron is suggesting is not really a reward at all. Um, and Morgoth plays on that. You might actually still beg me to give you death. You might wish I would give you death. And then he takes him to the hill of death, the hill of the slain, and has him look towards his homeland and towards his wife and his ch- and his uh, and his children from the vantage point of the dead of death itself and he says now they dwell in my realm and from where they're standing um, it's I think hard not to associate that word with death it's you know is, is death Morgoth's realm is that what we're seeing here death is his, his to give, what he rules over, that seems to be you know, a, a trend sort of in the imagery here of this passage. They are at my mercy, he says. You have none, answered Hurin, but you will not come at Turgon through them, for they do not know his secrets. Then wrath mastered Morgoth, and he said, Yet I may come at you, and all your accursed house, and you shall be broken on my will, though you, were, though you all were made of steel. Then he took up a long sword that lay there and broke it before the eyes of Hurin, and a splinter wounded his face, but Hurin did not blench. 
Then Morgoth, stretching out his long arm towards Dorloman, cursed Hurin and Morwen and their offspring, saying, Behold, the shadow of my thought shall lie upon them wherever they go, and my hate shall pursue them to the ends of the world. But Hurin said, You speak in vain, for you cannot see them, nor govern them from afar, not while you keep this shape and desire still to be a king visible upon earth. Okay. Question. What do you think? Why does Morgoth get mad? What ticks Morgoth off? Wrath mastered Morgoth. Why is he so angry? But you will not come at Turgon through them, for they do not know his secrets? I mean, okay. Maybe that's a little frustrating. Darn it, I was planning on kidnapping your wife and son and torturing them! Okay, but why? What is he so angry about? What do you think? What do you think? Um, of course, as Arthur points out, Horan knows what Morgoth really wants, uh, and lets him know that he's not going to give it, right? So simply the defiance. Um, uh, get done. Uh, Don standing says his bluff has been called. Yes, yes. Uh, both Sharon and Kevin are pointing out he can't master Hurin's will. Hurin, Hurin has withstood him. Uh, Brandon points out that he's angry uh, that Hurin answers him in humility. Um, I, 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 I think that's I think it's a good way of thinking about it. Um, yeah, Tom, Tom Hillman says, so much for the master of the fates of Arda. Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, uh, Gord points out, in the defiance is the suggestion that there is another greater power that could be chosen. Um, yes, yes, good. Um, this is a kind of rebellion much more significant in its way than the armed rebellion. Um or to say it perhaps in a much better way, this is the embodiment of that rebellion against him. Um, but the difference is that it's succeeding. Those who are who are uh, opposing him in arms, he can tell himself that he is in the process of crushing them, right? Um, Hurin is uncrushed, though defeated, though standing on the corpses of his people. The huge pile of his corpse is so large it makes a hill from which he can see out over the land, um, yet still standing in that place, Hurin is un... Hurin's will is unbroken. Um... Yeah. Um... He does that thing with the sword, right? Um, you shall be broken on my will, though you all were made of steel, right? And he breaks the sword to show how he can break even steel. Um, and that detail with the splinter wounding Hurin's face, right? He's not, you know, he's uh, he might be wounded by the breaking of the steel, but uh, he still doesn't blench. This is where we see Morgoth declaring his curse against Hurin and his kin. Behold, the shadow of my thought shall lie upon them wherever they go, and my hate shall pursue them to the ends of the world. Okay. Therefore, all the terrible things that happen to Turin, all the terrible things that happen to Turin and Morwen and Neonor, all the rest of his family, are due to the malice of Morgoth. Right? 
maybe. Hurin doesn't buy it. You speak in vain, he says, for you cannot see them nor govern them from afar. Who's right? Is is Morgoth bluffing? Hurin thinks he's bluffing. He doesn't think he's bluffing. He doesn't think he's faking, right? You speak in vain. He says, he's a, you're fooling yourself, right? You can't do that. That's kind of amazing. It kind of amazes me. Um, what this, I think, we, we should come back to this passage. I want us to be thinking about this. It seems to me that the truth lies somewhere in the middle. Turin's story seems to me to suggest that both Morgoth and Hurin have uh, have something going for them here. Morgoth does seem to be able to influence them. The curse of Morgoth does seem like a potent curse. It works. But he does not have the control that he thinks he does. Hurin's skepticism is also, I believe, justified. Yeah, uh, Bree says, uh, Hurin, Hurin, Bree Ma says, Hurin believes in choice over fate or doom. Yes, yes. Um, yeah, Alden asks, is the pride of Hurin blinding him? I don't think so, because I don't think that Hurin is speaking in pride here. In fact, what he goes on to speak after this is what he speaks about, about you know, Manwe and the Valar. He is repeating what he has learned from the elves um, about the powers and, you know, the, the, the rightful lord of, of Middle-earth, who is not Morgoth, but Manwe. Um, and, uh, and that, in fact, Morgoth is... Uh, is you know he says I look at you and I only see an escaped thrall of the Valar right you're a you're a runaway slave who's soon going to be rounded up you're a, you're an escaped prisoner whose jail cell cell is still waiting for you right that's um uh you know what what is that is there pride there yeah but again he's not pumping himself up right um, and here also look at the difference when we see Turin speaking defiantly as he speaks to 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 uh, um, Glauron, later on. Um, compare that with Hurin's defiance of <clears throat> Morgoth here. Um, and Hurin's defiance seems to me to be very unself-regarding. That is to say, he's not pumping himself up. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, When he talks about Manway and the Valar, you may recall, Morgoth responds by saying, oh, you've learned your lessons by rote, right? Um, in other words, you're just repeating all this junk you've learned from the elves, right? They don't know, right? I'm the boss. I was there. Um, the elves believe this, but they're wrong, right? We know what Hurin thinks of the elves. You know, we again, that's another part. The, the heck... I love this version of the Turin story, if only for the little snippets of, of, of the, the extra Hurin snippets that we get. I love hearing about Hurin, uh, and uh, it, I, I always loved the character of Hurin in the Silmarillion, uh, and I love him ten times as much uh, in this story. Um, we see the reverence that Hurin has for the elves and for their wisdom, um, and he completely believes everything uh, that they have told him. 
And so Morgoth tries to shake his faith in that, right? Yeah, you've learned your lessons by rote. You've memorized all the stuff that they've told you, but they don't know. You know, they 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 are ignorant. I will tell you uh, the real the real truth. Um, Hurin's response: This last, then, I will say to you, thrall Morgoth," said Hurin. And it does not come from the lore of the Eldar, but is put into my heart in this hour. You are not the lord of men, and shall not be, though all Arda and Menel fall in your dominion. Beyond the circles of the world you shall not pursue those who refuse you. Beyond the circles of the world I will not pursue them, said Morgoth, for beyond the circles of the world there is nothing, but within them they shall not escape me until they enter into nothing. You lie, said Hurin. You shall see, and you shall confess that I do not lie, said Morgoth. And taking Hurin back to Angband, he set him in a chair of stone upon a high place of Thangorodrim, from which he could see afar the land of Hithlum in the west, and the lands of Beleriand in the south. There he was bound by the power of Morgoth, and Morgoth, standing beside him, cursed him again, and set his power upon him, so that he could not move from that place, nor die, until Morgoth should release him. Sit now there, said Morgoth, and look out upon the lands where evil and despair shall come upon those whom you have delivered to me. For you have dared to mock me, and have questioned the power of Melkor, master of the fates of Arda. Therefore with my eyes you shall see, and with my ears you shall hear, and nothing shall be hidden from you. What is beyond the circles of the world? Nothing, says Morgoth. You lie, says Hurin. What is Hurin talking about? when he says, you lie. I have a theory here. My theory is that Hurin and Morgoth are having a little bit of a failure of communication in this particular moment. Um, Morgoth has just said two things. Okay, three if you count. Beyond the circles of the world, I will not pursue them. Um, He says, beyond the circles of the world, there is nothing. Thing one. Thing two. Within the circles of the world, they shall not escape me until they enter into nothing. He says, you lie. Wait. He lies about both? Or, if not both, which one is Hurin talking about? What lie exactly? What is he accusing him of lying him about? Morgoth seems to have a clear interpretation of his statement. You shall see, and you shall confess that I do not lie, said Morgoth. And then he takes him up and puts him in his chair, right? What is it that Morgoth is understanding? Morgoth is understanding that he shall not... Uh, that, that he does not lie about the fact that they will not escape him within the circles of the world, right? Oh, yes, they. it is certainly true that they won't escape me within the circles of the world. Here, I'll show you, right? I will make you look, I'll make you watch while I pursue them. And while I curse them. I don't think that's what Hurin was talking about. I think that Hurin is saying you lie. Primarily, I mean, he may mean both of them, but I'm not sure he doubts Morgoth. He did say you can't 
touch that which you know which is unseen. You can't you can't um, touch them from afar. He does seem to question the power of Morgoth to do this. But I think the mo- the more important statement is the first one, because it is upon that. It is upon that that Huron's first statement there, the statement that was put into his heart in that hour, was based. You are not the Lord of men. Beyond the circles of the world, you shall not pursue those who refuse you. Ultimately, men are free. You can All you can do is make their lives miserable. But that's all. You have no power over the fate of men. Thinking about fate in the way that we've already heard it talked about by Turin and Sador. You have no control over that fate. The only dominion you have is a petty dominion over our bodies while this life lasts, at best or at worst. But beyond that, you can't go. And this, he says, he is, he is speaking. Hurin claims inspiration when he says this. Um, this is not something he's learned from the Eldar. It's, this is something that is put in his heart that beyond the circles of the world you shall not pursue those who refuse you. Beyond the circles of the world there is nothing. That's the lie. He can say, I don't think you can, you can uh, successfully accomplish what you say you are planning to do within the circles of the world, but I don't think Hurin would say you lie about that. He'd say you can't, but he wouldn't say you lie. He did say earlier on you can't. Um... So I think it's kind of interesting here that it seems to me that, again, Morgoth uh, is not really tracking with Hurin exactly. Um, he says, Morgoth, there's nothing beyond the circles of the world. Is that a lie? There is the void, remember? And remember that the void, the emptiness of the void, the nothingness of the void bothered Melkor back in the Anuindalay, right? He wanted it not to be void. Both Jeff and uh, both Jeff Allen and Tom Hillman are remembering the imperishable flame that Melkor couldn't find, right? Yeah. Um, exactly. Morgoth is now constrained. If we go back... Let me go back here for a second. Um, if we go back to the previous passage, when Hurin says, You speak in vain, for you cannot see them, nor govern them from afar, not while you keep this shape and desire still to be a king visible upon earth. As we see Morgoth doing what we will see Sauron doing after him, that is, investing his power, dispersing his power here on, in the world, in Middle-earth, in, and pursuing his desire to rule Middle-earth. Um, we see in the Silmarillion Morgoth claiming Arda as his own when he descends in. Right? This I name to myself. Um, he wants that to be his dominion, and he is fixated upon it. Hurin says, and there seems to be weight in what he says, um, there seems, it's, this seems to be supported um, by other things in the Silmarillion, that Morgoth has become 
constricted, has become restricted through his own use of his own power. Um, he doesn't know, I don't think, what is beyond the circles of the world. Um, because Iluvatar is the one who knows that. And he's he's not hanging out with Iluvatar anymore. Um, Hurin, I don't know whom exactly Hurin has just received that inspiration. We don't get any hint of that. Is that an inspiration that comes from Iluvatar himself? Is it inspiration that comes from one of the Valar? We don't know. Um, but I am much more inclined to trust Hurin's inspiration here than I am to trust Morgoth's statement, because you can say Morgoth knows better than Hurin, but actually I'm not 100% sure that he does. Um, he's not, of course, as Sharon Hoff points out, he's not, uh, he's not omnipotent as he claims to be. And again, that's one of the places that, where I think we get a clear cue. Um, you have questioned the power of Melkor, master of the fates of Arda. He's obviously fooling himself. He's not master of the fates of Arda. He is, in fact, an escaped thrall um, whose chains still await him. Um, that's that's very true. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, so he is, in his pride, in Melkor's pride, fooling himself. Um and yeah, as uh, Diego says, ever since he pulled his grand theft Silmarilli, he is locked into his one shape through spending his power. Yeah, that's that's what Hurin is alluding to. That's one of those pieces of Eldar lore that he's talking about. Um, uh, not while you keep this shape and desire still to be a king visible upon the earth. Yeah, he is. Uh, he is. He is. He is restricted. Um, okay. So where does all this stuff put us? Well, again, backing up a second, thinking about the big picture here. The power of Melkor. We've not been given an answer to the question. Um, as we move from this passage to the rest of Turin's life, the question of to what degree, to what extent, is Morgoth's curse, is the evil will of Morgoth manifesting itself in the tragic circumstances of the rest of Turin's life? How much of that is Melkor's curse? And how much of that is simply a consequence of Turin's own choosing? That's a question which we are sort of prompted to ask, because it's prefaced by this debate wherein Morgoth says, I am in control, and I am going to make his life miserable. And we see his life indeed be quite miserable. But, at the same time, we are given Hurin, who says, you are deceiving yourself. And we have reason to believe that Melkor is indeed deceiving himself. And says, you can't do that at all, actually. So, who is right and who is wrong? I suspect it lies uh, somewhere in the middle. Um, We don't get an answer to the question, but uh, but we get a prompting to think in those terms. The other thing that we see is this issue of what, if anything, lies beyond the circles of the world. Lalith is gone, and she's not coming back. Where has she gone? What is going, you know, what is go- What is the fate of men, exactly? 
It's unknown to the Eldar. Sador doesn't know. Hurin doesn't know either. He's not learned it from the elves, because the elves don't know. But his statement, beyond the circles of the world, you shall not pursue those who refuse you, contains at least an element of hope, right? There is freedom. Freedom. Where evil can no longer pursue us. There is a destiny that men have, which will take us beyond the reach of Morgoth. Um, beyond the reach of evil. Beyond the reach of suffering. Morgoth says, there is nothing beyond the circles of the, of the world. But even if we don't even if we never read the Ainulindale, even if we have no other reason to suspect that Morgoth is uh, exaggerating or deceiving himself, um, even within the context of this conversation, we have good reason to question that. Because we see Morgoth's attitude and Morgoth's anger at Hurin for defying him. He is not okay with the fact that anything is beyond his reach, Right? So what does he say? That which is beyond my reach is nothing. Right? There is nothing there. Because I can't reach it. And so therefore that proves that it's nothing, because I can reach everything. Mm, I don't think that that's exactly true. But again, I think that this is another question that this conversation raises, which looms over the rest of the story. Um, so the question of Turin's fate, the will of Morgoth, his own choices, comes up again when he's talking to Melian. It's again another conversation we don't get in the Silmarillion. Um, this is when Turin is growing up, and he's going off to war for the first time. And Thingol's asking him, what do you want? You know, what do you want to be when you grow up, Turin? A man you seem in stature, Thingol answered, but nonetheless you have not come to the fullness of your manhood that shall be. When that time comes, then, maybe, you can remember your kin. But there is little hope that one man alone can do more against the Dark Lord than to aid the Elf Lords in their defense, as long as that may last. He's just, uh, Turin has just expressed his desire to go and attack Dor Loman and retake his homeland. And Thingol's like, eh, I think you're shooting a little high there, right? Um, you're not ready yet, you're not as grown up as you think you are, but even more... There is little hope that one man can do more against the Dark Lord than to aid the Elf Lords in their defense. That's your job. Hurin was cool with that, right? But uh, this is what Thingol is telling Turin. Then Turin said, Baron, my kinsman, did more. Baron and Luthien, said Melian. But you are overbold to speak so to the father of Luthien. Not so high as your destiny, I think, Turin, son of Morwen, though your fate is twined with that of the elven folk, for good or for ill. Beware of yourself, lest it be ill. Then after a silence, she spoke to him again, saying, Go now, foster son, and heed the counsel of the king. Yet I do not think that you will long abide with us in Doriath after the coming of manhood. If in days to come you remember the words of Melian, it will be for your good. Fear both the heat and the cold of your heart. These are the words of Melian that she wants him to remember in the days to come. Fear both the heat and the cold of your heart. Um, notice that her his fate, as she points to it, she when she points to his fate, she is not just talking about the curse of the, the fate, the doom that Morgoth has laid upon him. Of course, 
your fate is twined with that of the elfin folk. Not so high as your destiny, not so high as Baron. For good or ill, your fate is twined with the elven folk. Beware of yourself, lest it be ill. Beware of yourself. Melian plainly suggests that Turin's fate is ultimately in his hands. And that seems to be where she comes back to with the take-home message she wants to bring him. Um, fear both the heat and the cold of your heart. Um, she clearly believes that he has the ability to choose his own path, to determine where he's going to go, and whether his fate will be for the good or the ill of the elven folk. Um, she doesn't think he is barren. And notice where she starts with that. She's pointing out to him She's not just saying, uh, you know, I knew Baron, you are no Baron, right? She's not just saying that. She's saying, you don't get Baron, right? Um, if you think that Baron, your kinsman, and she notice how she acknowledges that Baron is his kinsman by calling him Turin, son of Morwen, rather than Turin, son of Hurin, right? And because Morwen was the kinsman of Baron, so she, uh, the kinswoman of Baron, so she knows. She's like, yeah, yeah, you're you're related to Baron. But you're not Baron. And she doesn't say that, but meaning you're not as good as Baron, right? You're like the poor man's Baron. That's not what she's saying. She's saying, you don't understand, Baron and Luthien did this, right? If you think, Turin, that Baron achieved this stuff by himself, you've totally missed the boat, right? You've totally misunderstood the Baron and Luthien story, okay? Um, you don't have a Luthien. So forget about it, right? Um, you can't do... Baron did what he did uh, in cutting the Silmaril from Morgoth's crown with Luthien's help. Um, don't take that as an example. Since Baron cut the Silmaril from his crown, I can go and challenge Morgoth. No, you can't. You're not getting it. Um, and yet, he does have... Um, he does have a choice. We get a hint, of course, also in this story, that his that there is another positive fate. That, again, to sort of uh, back up what Melian is saying here about that he could, in fact, his fate could be twined with the elven folk for good, rather than for ill. And that's in. Uh, I, I'm not going to be talking too much today about the material that's given in a in an appendix to chapter two, um, the stuff that comes in that middle, the gap section, the whole Nargathron section from from uh, his time with Meme and Amonruth, where it cuts off and then it resumes when he goes back to Dor Loman and Christopher Tolkien helpfully says, uh, "See the Silmarillion to fill in the gap here uh, about his whole time in Nargathron," um, but uh, and not to mention his totally heart-wrenching accidental slaughter of Baron, of Beleg Strongbow, uh, which is uh, still the most one of the most painful moments in literature, as far as I'm concerned. However, um, uh, the the snatches from those uh, from Tolkien's notes about um, you know those parts of the story that Christopher Tolkien supplies in the appendix there of um, of of the unfinished tales story. 
<clears throat> and which we can see integrated more thoroughly into the story in the Children of Hurin. I'm going to come back to those passages next time. Um, but there's one little bit, because it's re- connected to what Melian says, that I wanted to point to, <clears throat> and that is one of Finduilis's comments. She's uh, speaking to Gwyndor, of course. But what of your doom and rumors of Angband? What of death and destruction? The Adonathel is mighty. She's, it's Turin, of course, one of his names. The Adonathel, the elf man, is mighty in the tale of the world, and his stature shall reach yet to Morgoth in some far day to come. He is proud, said Gwyndor. But also he is merciful, said Finduilas. He is not yet awake, but still pity can ever pierce his heart, and he will never deny it. Pity, maybe, shall be ever the only entry, but he does not pity me. He holds me in awe, as were I both his mother and a queen. Maybe Finduela spoke truly, seeing with the keen eyes of the Eldar. Um, I love this speech, in part because it's another, it's one of those moments in the Silmarillion that I always disliked, that I always was disappointed by, that I always felt sort of fell a little flat um, when Gwyndor is cautioning Finduilas, and in the Silmarillion she says, Turin neither loves me nor shall. And that's all she says. I'm more like, come on, Finduilas, really? That's it? You know, um, the greater amount of conversation from Finduilas helps me a lot, actually. I like it a lot. Um, Note her implication here. His stature shall reach yet to Morgoth in some far day to come. I hear in that an echo of his original destiny. Um, the, the, um, the echo of his uh, reaching to Morgoth, his killing Morgoth with his sword. This implication that there is perhaps a high destiny um, in some far day to come for Turin, that there is a good fate that lies over him, at least a potential good fate. Um, and we don't really know. It, Yana is pointing out the line, he is not yet awake. I agree, Yana, that's a very intriguing line. Um, he is not yet awake, but still pity can ever pierce his heart. She describes his state um, as one of well, being asleep, in a sense. Um, certainly, in a sense, he's sort of morally asleep. Um, but um, uh, it's a fascinating way of saying it. Notice the way that that's constructed. Also, he is merciful. He is not yet awake, but still pity can ever pierce his heart. Despite the fact that he's not awake, pity can still pierce his heart. That's why I think of it as a kind of moral awakeness. That is... Um, Turin is proud, and uh, is proud, hard-hearted, and hard-headed during this time of his life, um, leading him ultimately to the refusal of the uh, of the message from Ulmo. We'll talk about that next time. Um, and so it's in that sense, I think, that Finduilis, Finduilis is saying he is not yet awake. If he ever were to awake, if he ever were to sort of open his eyes from this little 
um, uh, sort of narcissistic shell that he is currently living in, where he thinks so highly of himself and um, and doesn't really think about other things. Um, uh, he then he would be really great. Um, he will never deny pity. Pity may be, shall ever be, the only entry. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, Brie Ma is saying uh, that uh, pity is the only way for him to do good, and the link to Hurin uh, telling Morgoth that he is without mercy. Yes, and also, of course, remember the conversation about pity um, that Hurin and Morwen have about Turin when he gives his knife away to Sador, right? He gives his birthday present. Uh, he gives away a present on his birthday, right, uh, to Sador. And Hurin highly approves his act of pity, right? The pity that he has for, for Sador. That's a great thing about him. Um, and as Scott points out, he pities Meme as well. Um, yes, yes. Pity... Um, Margot asks if pity is sort of the same thing as compassion in Tolkien. Yes, compassion is certainly involved in it, um, but it, I wouldn't say that they're identical. Um, pity is... Kindness and compassion shown to somebody who is suffering. The thing about pity, the reason that people don't like pity, the reason people often resent pity, is that there's an implied differential there, right? If one person is pitying another, they are, in one sense, holding themselves above the other. Um, but it's true, pity is something that a person who is not currently suffering has for someone who is, right? Um, but that doesn't mean sometimes pity can be sort of falsely given, or a way to kind of emphasize one's superiority over another. Um, I pity you because you don't have what I do, because you are not as awesome as I am. But that's not the kind of, it's not the kind of pity that Bilbo shows to Gollum, that is not the kind of pity uh, that Frodo and Sam also show to Gollum, um, that is uh, not the kind of pity that Turin shows to Sador. Um, but it's true that if you are not yourself whole, you cannot pity one who is suffering. If you are uh, if you are suffering equally along with the other person, you can have compassion for them, but not pity in the same way. Um, Jeff asks if we can compare Gollum to Turin. Sure, we can compare them. They're not identical. It's not the same situation. Um, but uh, what this passage, of course, invites us to do is compare him to Bilbo. Um, Pity maybe shall ever be the only entry. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, Bree asks, is Turin's pity a part of his pride? No. Um, it is the opposite of his pride. Um, see, again, that's where I think a, a mod sort of the modern... We tend to use pity only, or predominantly in a negative way, in the modern world, and we associate it with pride. It's arrogant people who have pity for other people. Um, but that is not Tolkien's pity. Um, pity is... Uh, it's, it's the counteractive. That's what she means by saying pity maybe shall, shall ever be the only entry. Um, the only way that he can enter into... Um, 
you know, this, this being awake, the, the way that he, the only way that he can wake up. Um, it is his pride which prevents him being pitiful, uh, be, not pitiful, pitiable, uh, or no pitiful in the old sense of that word, um, being full of pity. Um, that stops him having pity for others. When he is giving away his knife, um, he is not being proud. He's being humble. He is taking this gift which was given. You think about it. Uh, the reason that Hurin and Morwen are shocked is that this was a special gift he was given. This is not just like he gave away his present, right? This is like you, Turin, the heir of Hurin, and lord of the future lord of this realm are you know, now on your birthday coming closer to manhood and the full inheritance uh, of, you know, your, uh, your you know, future destiny, and we are going to mark that occasion by the giving of this magic knife and, uh, uh, you know, this, this elvish blade, uh, you know, sort of a token of the sword that you shall wield in defense of the ho- as the Lord later on. It's, you know, the symbolic significance of this gift is obviously very important, um, very prominent to both Hurin and Morwen. <clears throat> Turin doesn't think of that, right? He only looks at this knife and says, my friend Sador, who has so little, could really use this. He needs good tools for his wood carving because he doesn't have much and he has poor tools. So I'm going to take this knife, which if he were being proud, he would never give away, right? Because it would be the symbol. It was meant to be the symbol of his position, the symbol of his future career. Um, but instead he gives it to, away to his friend um, that... Uh, uh, who needs it for wood carving, or who could use it rather for wood carving? It is um, an immensely humble gesture, humble in the se- in the sense of self-forgetful. Um, he sees that knife and immediately thinks of another, and does not give a second thought to himself and his status and his stature and what it means um, in the eyes of others. Doesn't give a thought for it. So in that, that, to me, is the illustration of how pity is the opposite of pride. Um, Dime asks a wonderful question. Let me preface this before I even repeat Dime's question with saying there is abs- I know no evidence for this whatsoever. However, Dime, that is awesome, and I love it. Dime says, I wonder if that knife, if Turin's knife, was Sting. Wouldn't that be cool? <laughs> we don't know. No reason to think so. Uh, uh, Sting came from Gondolin, presumably, we learn in there, and uh, so there's no reason to think that Turin's knife would get in there. Uh, but uh, it is Sting and the blade of uh, Turin that Turin gives to Sador are the only two magical elvish knives that we read about uh, in, in these traditions. Um, so, yeah, yeah, no, I, there's no reason, I think, to uh, to um, speculate about uh, Br- Brianna Melvin still likes the idea that Sting was uh, A. Arendel's boyhood sword, perhaps. <clears throat> That's at least uh, sort of more plausible. But, um, uh, anyway, uh, Okay, sorry. Wild speculations aside. Um, Anyhow, okay. 
I should stop soon. Sorry, I'm doing that thing that I so often do when I come to the end of classes. I'm doing my... Should I just stop now? Or should I try to squeeze in something else? Um, I think I'm going to stop now. Um, because we are about to... What I wanted to move to next is looking at some of Turin's choices. And to look at those moments of decision. And begin to see, you know, having established these terms, um, looking at his fate and the possibilities of his fate, the way that Melian has instructed us to consider his fate as a sort of an open question and dependent very much upon um, his own heart and his own his relationship with his own heart. Finduilas suggesting that he could develop in this positive way um, if he wakes up. But the question is, is he going to wake up? Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, so yes, Neil, we'll get to the Turin scale next week, I think. Um, we might as well look at, uh, at a bunch of those choices together, rather. Than, I was just going to start with a couple of choices and continue next week, but we'll, we'll do those next week. I also want to look at, at, uh, at, at Glaurung. And please do pay attention to that appendix section where Christopher Tolkien gives us the fragments, uh, of bits and pieces that, uh, Tolkien left from his notes on those, uh, the Nargothron section, especially. I definitely want to look at, um, some of the, uh, Ar- the Galmir and, Ar- and Arminas sections, those two Noldor that, uh, Tuor ran into on their way to Nargothron to deliver this, uh, message to, to Turin. Um, so, uh, um, oh, Scott was asking about Neem's earth bread. They're potatoes, I believe. They're not named. Potatoes have only a secret name in the language of the dwarves, but, yeah, my understanding is that those are, those are potatoes that Neem has discovered. Um, uh, it's pretty awesome. Uh, anyhow, um, yeah, taters, exactly, yeah. The gaffer's, the gaffer's delight. Um, uh, Meme discovered them, so there you go. Um, yeah, so we'll look. So next, so for for the next class, we'll look at Turin's choices. Um, I, I want to look at his his rejection. One of the choices, of course, is the rejection uh, of the advice of Arminus and Gelmir. So do read the that appendix section, and then of course, um, looking at Glaurung and his relationship with Glaurung. Glaurung as an instrument of Morgoth's curse. Um, okay, so. Yeah, yeah. No, no, no. Uh, that, that's, that's, that's definitely where, gonna, where I'm going to stop. So we'll finish, uh, confidently, finish Turin next week, uh, and then uh, move on up into the Second Age. So, uh, so yeah, incest next week, Jordan. That's definitely on the docket uh, for next week. So, uh, so I'm sure everyone's looking forward to that. Okay? Um, oh, um, yeah. Thanks very much, everybody. Uh, I look forward to seeing you guys next week, and I should have the recordings of the of this uh, session up uh, much more quickly than I did last week. Uh, so, uh, for for if you know people who weren't able to attend live, um, uh, it should be okay. Oh yeah, Scott, I do think we'll, we'll we'll be we'll keep it clean next week. It'll still be I hope comparatively family friendly. So no worries. <laughs> All right, thanks everybody. Good night. <laughs>